ago. Um, before we get going, I did see some kids uh, with us today. And so uh, if, if uh, you wanted to head out to join the holiday program, please do. Have we got helpers who are on today? To, can somebody help me with that? We do, we do. Jason says we do. So uh, your, your kids will be supervised if they're out there. They're not just going to be running rampant. But uh, please, please join them. That'd be fantastic. Why don't you say hi to the people around you? We didn't get a chance to do that. Say hi, welcome, and we'll get started real, real, real soon. Right, I might bring us all back together. Well, uh, I just wanted to extend or add, sorry, my welcome uh, to Melissa's. Welcome to church. My name's Dom. I'm one of the pastors of our church. Uh, we've, we've been kind of traveling through a summer series together, uh, looking at the head, heart, and hands, uh, where we've been considering what it means for all of our beings to be involved in the work of spreading the good news of Jesus to those around us. Right? We looked at our minds, firstly, our head. That that's involved. We looked at our inner beings, our heart. And today, as we reach the end of our summer series, we're, we're looking at our actions, our words, what we do, our hands. And so, um, I, also, I wanted to add an, an invitation to you. If, if you haven't had a chance to come to one of these Wednesday workshops that we've had attached to each of these Sundays, uh, you've got one last chance to come along. It's this Wednesday, 7.45, just in the hall over there. I hear it'll be fantastic. I hear there'll be some, pri- some surprises, uh, but I think it'll be um, really, really worthwhile if the last two were any indication to go by. So please come along, 7.45 this Wednesday. So today we're at hands, and more specifically, we're looking at engaging our hands, as you uh, see in the title in your outlines, towards hospitality. Our hands towards hospitality. Now to do that, we're going to be looking from God's Word at the example of Jesus. Uh, uh, when he read for us, the end of the passage we'll be looking at, we'll be looking at from verse 1 right to, right to verse 17. And I know you don't necessarily have points in your outline. It will be on the screens to help you follow along. Um, so I can't wait to get into what uh, we've just read and what we'll look at together. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you for the privilege it is to be in your word. The privilege it is that you speak to us, that you're not some distant God that wants nothing to do with us, that kind of sets the universe into motion and let it run in its own course. Father, you chose to reveal yourself by your word, and you want to speak to us today by that same word. And so, Father, help us to come with really expectant hearts for what you might speak to us today. Challenge us, we pray. Maybe even rebuke us, we pray. And help us to live lives um, that declare the good news of Jesus, even in what we do, not just what we say. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The atmosphere... In the large upstairs room was tense, unhappy, uncertain. The evening had gone badly from the start. 
You see, the disciples had gathered with Jesus, as arranged, and climbed to the upstairs room where the food was already pre-prepared. They looked around for the traditional servant to wash their feet, but seeing no one and being polite to, to mention it, they stretched out on their pallets around the low eating table without saying a word. Jesus offered the traditional prayer of thanksgiving. And then they noticed that Jesus was pushing himself off of his pallet. The talk was stilled. The master quietly took off his cloak, and to their utter consternation, he went over to the washstand, wrapped the towel around his waist, picked up a large basin of water, and he headed towards the nearest disciple. Teachers shouldn't do things like that. Not even equals should wash another's feet. That's a job for servants, and the servants with least seniority at that. The first disciple, too surprised to move, too embarrassed to protest, felt his sandals being slipped off. And then the cool water and the dry towel. The master proceeded to the second disciple and to the third. All the while, the silence was deafening. Typically, it was Simon Peter who broke the silence, and as Jesus approached to wash his feet, Peter curled up his legs and pointed out the inappropriateness of the master's action with what he thought was a really tactful question. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus straightened his back, looked him straight in the eye, and replied quietly, You do not realize now what I'm doing but later you will understand. Peter's voice hardened. Someone had to speak out. If the master could not see that he was demeaning himself, Peter would have to tell him, no, he said, you'll never wash my feet. Still Jesus looked at him with that unwavering gaze. Unless I wash you, he said, you have no part with me. Open confrontation. Now, for a moment, the still air was charged with suspense. Did Jesus not recognize that Peter was speaking out of love? But faced with a response like that, Peter was not slow in rising to the occasion. He decided to take advantage of the situation and declare his love for Jesus in a different way. Then, Lord, he replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now, that might have relieved the tension, but then Jesus added something more. Something which at the time was highly enigmatic and restored the gloomy foreboding in the room. Jesus said, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And he added, looking around the room, you are clean, though not every one of you. And in the utter silence that followed, he finished washing their feet. The disciples watched Jesus wipe his hands, don his cloak, and return to his pallet. Unable to look at each other, embarrassed both for themselves and for their teacher, they were quietly grateful that this episode was now over. And then all of a sudden it was not, because Jesus began speaking again. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. They understood well enough he had washed their feet, but then they began to see that he expected a deeper answer. When Jesus, what Jesus had done for them was to provide a model. And as this truth slowly dawned on them, drawn out by this quiet question, they found their groping answered, confirmed, as Jesus responded to his own question. 
You call me teacher and Lord, he said, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have, uh, that, as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do. That was an extended excerpt of, our, of, the narrate, uh, of a narration of our passage today. Now I did that and I read that, it was quite long, because hopefully you were able to enter a space a little bit where you could imagine yourself as a disciple, seeing Jesus in this moment. Because when John records this account for us, he describes it in such a way that he wants us to sit with him in that upper room. He wants us to see what he saw, to hear what he heard, and to feel the weight of what Jesus did. Why? Because as we do that, we might begin to understand why Jesus would do such a bewildering thing. And by extension, why we must too. Because that's what he says in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13 and 14, read with me. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to even wash another person's feet? I mean, living in 21st century Sydney, we, we have a slight disadvantage, I think, and a bit of work to do in terms of working this out. Right? It's not a simple one-to-one black-and-white application. I think very few of us would come away from a passage like this to get towels and robes and begin to literally wash other people's feet. Well, I hope not anyway, right? Because there's a historical and cultural hurdle, isn't there? We've got to overcome those hurdles in order to understand what it is that Jesus is telling his disciples to do and therefore telling us to do. So we've got a bit of work ahead of us, but I hope that you desire to know so that we might be better followers of Jesus. So we're going to go to our first point today, that foot washing is an act of hospitality. Foot washing, an act of hospitality. Now, Jesus wasn't doing an action that was particularly new. Foot washing was actually um, quite common. Foot washing, as we see in the Old Testament, was part and parcel of how you would welcome someone into your home. Right? Um, there are some passages on your screen, on the screen. Uh, feel free to look them up in your own time uh, that show us some of this, that foot washing was just something that people did to welcome. Now, it's the equivalent of offering somebody slippers in an Asian household, right? This is a huge part of how you just welcome in the ancient world. Now, how did it work? How did it work? Well, foot washing was typically done when a guest or a stranger arrived at your place. The guest would go and recline on a mat around a low table. He would lean on their left, on their left arm and they would point their feet outwards so that it could be washed. And there was a real need for it, right? The, their feet would have been pretty dusty, They would have walked all over the place. They would have walked over long distances in their rope and leather sandals. Their feet would have been sweaty and filthy. And so as you walked into somebody's home, it had to be cleaned. It was a dirty job. It was a gross job. It was a disgusting job. And so the job was left to the lowliest of servants to do. It was their job to wash the feet of these guests. And so you've got to understand that the practice of foot washing was actually one of welcoming. 
It's an action of hospitality. It's extending one's place to receive guests and even strangers. And it was a way to show people that you were totally devoted to them as your guests. That even though you weren't the one doing the foot washing, you were subservient to them. You were willing to serve them in any way. The account we have in John 13, it's actually unique to the biography written by John. I I don't know if you know that. Um, The other biographies that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke, they they don't have this account. Um, And I think, I mean, there are many reasons for for the differences, but the the reason that I want to draw to your attention today is that hospitality, welcoming, that's a theme that is also unique to the biography of Jesus written by John. That's a theme that's unique to the biography of Jesus written by John. Now, we don't see the word hospitality anywhere, but when you read the whole book, it's hard to miss the theme. Let me give you a few examples, right? The very beginning, the very beginning of the biography of John paints this picture that Jesus became vulnerable to the welcome of the world, which in turn failed to treat him with hospitality, right? Uh, Famous verses of John chapter 1. He came to that which was his own. That's Jesus. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to enter into our world is a demonstration of his willingness to share himself to the world. But also that he has come to the world to be welcomed by the world. See, John, right at the very beginning of his biography, beautifully paints this picture of the giving of hospitality and also the desiring of hospitality that Jesus wants. But we have more examples, right? Um, The biography of John will use the language of receiving. We, We see it there, actually, and not receiving. Just like you receive someone when you're showing hospitality, those who accept God are described throughout the Gospel of John, as those who receive Jesus. They receive Jesus for who He is. Similarly, those that reject Jesus are commonly described as not receiving Jesus. That's the language of hospitality. We also see that Jesus was the gift sent from God. That's unique to John. He's the gift of life-giving bread. He's the gift of living water. And so not only is accepting Jesus used in terms of hospitality, But Jesus himself, the gift, he's described in terms of hospitality. He's the bread for the hungry. He's the water for the thirsty. And there's way more that can be said, but I hope you agree that hospitality is a theme in the biography that John writes. It's not the biggest theme, but it is a theme. It's there. And so it's unsurprising, really, that the biography of John is the only biography that talks about this act of hospitality that Jesus does for his disciples. He's performing an ancient custom of hospitality by washing their feet. And so now that we've established that, now that we've established that foot washing is an act of hospitality, we move on to our second point, that it's a symbol for hospitality. It's a symbol for hospitality. Why does Jesus do this foot washing? And what do we learn about hospitality from what Jesus does with the foot washing? I think there are a couple of things that we've got to keep in mind. I think, firstly, we see that Jesus' hospitality is marked by love. Jesus' hospitality is marked 
by love. We see that at the end of verse 1, don't we? Have a look at the end of verse 1. We read that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, because of his love, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. That phrase, he loved to the end, isn't just about loving them to the end of his life, which he certainly does, but Jesus loves them to the highest intensity. That's what that's talking about. He loves them utterly. This is a deep, deep love. And and if you're familiar with Jesus and who he is, you'll know that throughout his time on earth, Jesus is constantly calling people to love. He calls people to love their neighbors, whether whether they like them or not. He calls people to love their enemies as well. And so on this night recorded for us, Jesus shows us precisely what this love looks like. And this love isn't glamorous, is it? As we talked about earlier, this is a job reserved for the lowliest of servants. You're dealing with sweat, dirt, dung, all sorts of smells. Love doesn't always appear glamorous. And I think for many of us, we know that already, right? I was speaking to a cousin who was visiting from Hong Kong just a few weeks ago in the lead up to Christmas. She has a two-year-old boy, um, and she was describing how he threw up on the plane. He wasn't feeling too well. Now, I don't know about you, but my reaction when somebody throws up is often to turn the other way. Uh, when we're on a plane, the best I'll do is maybe offer, it, offer, offer the, you know, the bag that you get in front of the seat. But what does my cousin do as, as, as the mum? Her first instinct was to put out her hands to try to catch as much of the vomit as possible. Showing love is not always glamorous, right? We get that. We know that. And Jesus shows us in the muck and mire of washing feet that hospitality motivated by love is not glamorous either. That's what it looks like to love. Now, the trouble is, though, is that we can feel like we're above that sometimes. Maybe it's because uh, maybe we've reached a certain pedigree in life. Maybe it's something we've had to do in the past, and so we've kind of moved on from that. Maybe, maybe we just think that there are better things to do with our time. But notice, notice the detail that John highlights for us about Jesus, particularly about what Jesus knew. Have a look at verse 3. Right, verse 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So... He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. See, what did Jesus know? Jesus knew that God had put everything under his control. He knew that he was from eternity past. He knew he was returning to God to reign with power. Jesus knew he had all the power, all the knowledge, all the pedigree, all the glory, and yet it is because of that knowledge that he gets up from the meal, he takes off his outer clothing, and he wraps the towel around his waist. Because of that pedigree, because of that knowledge, that's absolutely incredible. Right? And if you do a bit of stitching and find out and look at the other biography, biography of Jesus and see what's going on, you're going to see that the other disciples, they've just spent a decent length of time bickering amongst themselves to decide who was the greatest disciple among them all. And so... The last thing on any of the disciples' minds is to take up the towel and, to, and the bowl and to, and to get down and to wash anybody's feet. But what do we have? We have the Lord Jesus, who, according to everybody in that room, is infinitely greater than themselves. He takes that task up. He's the first and only one to do it. 
and he willingly shows hospitality. He willingly serves. See, in this act, church, Jesus so powerfully demonstrates that our God is a God who serves and welcomes. See, not only is Jesus' hospitality marked by love, Jesus' hospitality is also marked by a willingness to be hurt. Like we already said, Jesus is keenly aware of everything that's about to take place. He knows. And so therefore, he knows that right there in the middle of this room, in the middle of his dearest friends, friends who had traveled every step he took the last three years of his public ministry, there is one of them who would soon leave the room, betray him for pieces of silver, and deliver him over to the authorities. He knows that. We see that, right? Verse 2 says it. Um, You just have to have a look. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Verse 11, it says that Jesus knew, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows that Judas is in the room. Now, in Middle Eastern hospitality, to turn against the one who has welcomed you and shown you hospitality, that's the height of betrayal. And yet... Jesus is undeterred. Despite experiencing, no doubt, the deepest hurt with a soon-to-be betrayal, he goes ahead to wash Judas's feet. Jesus welcomes him. He loves him still, and he serves him. What a contrast, right? On the one hand, you have Judas's appalling action, and on the other, you have Jesus' love and welcome in spite of that. One writer says it's, in, it's hard to conceive of a more powerful demonstration of Jesus' command to love one's enemies. And we looked at that a little bit last week. And so what does that mean for us? Right? We, we see Jesus' love is marked, uh, Jesus' uh, hospitality is marked by love. His, his hospitality is marked by a willingness to be hurt. What, what does that mean for us? Well, I think when we put these two aspects of Jesus' hospitality together, it sounds like a very different hospitality than what we might be used to, I think. See, when you put these two aspects of Jesus' hospitality together, it's very difficult to hold on to hospitality as simply being a form of entertaining people, entertaining your family, entertaining your friends, having people over to hang out. See, hospitality, you know, it certainly includes that, but it can't just be that. And so what what then? What do we do with hospitality? I want to suggest today that the hospitality that Jesus shows is a hospitality that adopts what Jesus demonstrated so powerfully. It must include welcoming and serving in the hopes that outsiders move from stranger to guests in God's home. That's the hospitality that Jesus is doing. It must involve the welcoming and serving in the hopes that outsiders move from stranger to guests in God's home. That's the hospitality that we're, that we're being shown in what Jesus is doing as he washes his disciples' feet. We see that, right? That's, that's what he hopes his disciples will do for others as well. He wants his disciples to show welcome. Hospitality as they go out, speak to, serve and love by washing other people's feet. Welcoming them into God's household. 
Now, as we as a church consider what it means to involve our heads, our hearts, and our hands in the task of reaching those who don't know Jesus, we must not forget that Jesus has called us to wash one another's feet. He has told us to serve, to show hospitality, to welcome others as He has served, shown hospitality, and welcomed us. And so that applies to how we show hospitality and connect at church on a Sunday. Right? And I'm so thankful that we've got connecting teams that we have across all our congregations, really, and in general, how willing people in our congregations are to connect with people that usually don't come to church. Every Sunday we have people, we host people who are thinking about Christianity and are asking questions of it, and we welcome them into this house. And so, just as an encouragement, continue to welcome and serve them. But this isn't just for Sunday at church. I want you to reflect with me. When was the last time? When was the last time you welcomed people into your life and into your home with the primary intention to show hospitality in the hopes that outsiders move from strangers to guests in God's home? When was the last time you did that? Not to entertain, but to move straight from strangers to guests. That's your primary intention. Now, uh, Sam Chan, uh, some of you may have heard of him. Uh, he's done a lot of work thinking about telling people about Jesus. It's his full-time job telling, telling city workers. Um, he's lectured on these sorts of subjects in the past. And he wrote a book last year. Um, you may have seen that as well, which I'd highly recommend you all to read. Uh, it's all about how to make the unbelievably good news of Jesus in a skeptical world more believable. Now, uh, one of the fantastic observations of Western culture that Sam makes is that um, there are two types of statements that often make up dialogue. Right? Um, there are um, statements that are often difficult to verify, firstly. Right? So statements like gambling is wrong, for example. Capitalism is better than socialism. There is a God, those types of statements. Right? And when we talk about topics like that, what ends up happening is that it often leads to arguments or, ex- or at least extensive discussions. Right? These types of statements uh, are called noumenal statements. Right? And see, these noumenal statements that are difficult to verify, that are difficult to prove sometimes, unsurprisingly, at least in the West, they're often talked about in private spaces, which is probably why we're taught to avoid talking about religion and we avoid talking about politics in public conversation. Right? That's your first type of statement, this noumenal statement. But there is a second type of statement, a phenomenal statement. Right? Phenomenal statements are statements that can be easily backed up. You can access them, you can verify them pretty easily based on a phenomenon. Right? For example, 1 plus 1 is 2, the sky is blue, Nadal won the other day. Right? And those things are safer to talk about in public and make for pretty easy conversation and make up, I think, a lot of what we call as small talk. And so you've got these two types of statement, noumenal and phenomenal. And when it's applied to faith, what it's led to is a divide. You've got the sacred and the secular. You've got a sacred and secular divide. Which is why when we live in Sydney, we're subtly told that we're free to believe anything we want to believe as long as it's in the privacy of your own home. Because that's where noumenal things are discussed. That's why noumenal things can be held. And yet when you're in the public... You're not meant to talk about this stuff. Those, those things are s- sacred for the private. In public, you, in public, you talk about things that are secular, that are safe. 
And so the only, things you talk, only times you talk about things that are sacred are in the home or in slightly more religious spaces like church service. See, this divide between sacred noumenal versus secular phenomenal, if you examine your own life and your own experiences week to week, exists. And Sam writes, we can fight against that divide. We can try to dismantle it. We can be winsome to try to overcome it. But in the meantime, what we need to be doing is we need to work with it. It exists. It's a reality. And so we need to work with it. So what does he say? How do we work with it? Well, I encourage you to read the book, but essentially, he says, learn to be hospitable. That's his solution. He says, progressively work your way to invite people into private spaces where conversations about numinal topics and sacred topics, you know, are naturally going to happen more. Things like your view on education, your your views on politics, health, and maybe eventually your faith. Make the most of the fact that people are more willing to engage with matters of faith when they are sitting across the table from you or on your couch. And so, church, what is the next step for you in showing hospitality that hopes to move outsiders from strangers to guests? What's the next step? Well, perhaps for you, nobody comes to mind. That kind of fits in that category. Perhaps for you, then, the next step is to pray and consider people you might get to know your neighbor, that person on your sport team, that colleague. And maybe if you do, the next step after that might be to begin to just grab a coffee. Invite them just to hang. It isn't too long, which is great for you if this sort of thing is nerve-wracking, but it's also great for them because it's not overly confrontational. Perhaps the next step for you might be that you, you have people in your life re- regularly that you see that are unbelievers. But conversations have never moved towards matters of faith. Perhaps for you, if you're in that space, the next step is to pray for courage to bring it up in the middle of the next time that you're spending a decent amount of time with them. Maybe invite them over if you have your own place. If you don't have your own place, invite them for a drink somewhere maybe. And as you talk, perhaps prompt them. Ask them if they've ever believed anything. Maybe you could ask them what we sent in our survey recently. If you had a question for God, what would it be? Delve into what drives them and their purpose in life. And I suspect when they speak, they're going to give little indicators that might alert you and invite you to speak more deeply with them. But you've got to be in the lookout and you've got to listen. Now, I say all these things, and those are all possible next steps. I say all these things knowing that that is terrifying. If you're anything like me, this is terrifying stuff. I'd be squirming in my seat if somebody was saying this to me. This stuff is uncomfortable. This, this, might, this might seem close to impossible. How do we do this? I want to suggest to us that Jesus hints at it in John 13, in our third point today that we're going to look at, that foot washing is also a pointer to hospitality. See, Southwest, when Peter the disciple, when he stands up to Jesus and tells him how ludicrous it is that he's doing the work of a lowly servant, Jesus replies to him in verse 7. He says, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And after Peter protests, probably because it doesn't make sense to him, Jesus makes an even stronger statement in verse 8. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
See, what's Jesus saying? Is he saying that you can't be a disciple if you have stinky feet? Thankfully for many of us, that's not the case. No, Jesus is saying that the picture of hospitality and welcome we see in the washing of feet points to the ultimate act of hospitality and welcome. When he gave his life for us on the cross. You see, that very night, after washing the disciples' feet, Jesus was arrested. The next day, he was wrongly accused. Then he was hung on a cross. But three days later, he rose again. He conquered death. And in that death and resurrection, Jesus washed us. He washed away our past, our failings, our inadequacies. He washed away our repeated disregard for God. He washed away our sin completely and utterly. See, the parallels of foot washing to the cross are huge, really. In both cases, Jesus adopts the role of the most despised servant for the good of others. In both cases, his disciples are made clean. In both cases, Jesus' action is incredibly shocking. He's driven by love and a willingness to be hurt. And in both cases, through what he has done, he welcomes those he loves. Why can we be hospitable? Even when it feels and seems almost impossible, how can we do that? It's this. Here's why. Here's how. Jesus has extended to us a welcome in the most ultimate way. He laid down his life so that we might find life, and he tells us to lay down our lives so that others might find life. Jesus wants everybody everywhere to know, that, to know what he's done for them, so that they too can be washed by his death and resurrection, that they too are welcome because of his hospitality to them. And that means we've got to tell them, right? But it doesn't stop there. From a passage like John 13, it means that we've got to show them too. Through our lives, our service, our hospitality, we show people. And so Jesus calls us to take off our fancy clothes. He calls us to take a towel and a bowl and to wash people's feet. When we truly serve people, when we truly welcome them, we give them a glimpse that Jesus loves them. So if you're visiting church today, and you're checking out Christianity, a lot of this message, really a lot of this series, has really been to the family of believers. And I don't say that to exclude you in any way. Um, But I want you to hear that this is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has extended this ultimate act of hospitality and welcome to you. He's done that, as we see in the foot washing, He's done that more ultimately as He dies on the cross. And so if you want to find out more, if you have questions, you know what, come back back next week, but definitely come back in February. You may have received a card on your way in that says questions for God. We've got four weeks where we're going to explore um, from a survey that we sent out to 200 people that don't regularly go to church and don't call themselves Christians questions that they might ask God if there was a God. And we've compiled the top four responses and we've made them the the subject of each week throughout February. And so come back to that because I think it'll be really, really great. But as we close, to to the believers, to the Jesus followers in the room, we need to welcome and serve others, showing hospitality the same way Jesus did as he washed his disciples' feet. And as he went to Calvary, he did the same thing.
That's why he says what he says at the end of our passage from verse 15. He says, I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do. Amen.